Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Before we get to the interview for today, let me tell you first about the Missions Resource Network. This is an organization that's about helping disciples make disciples worldwide through mobilizing, equipping, preparing, and caring. They do great work such as missionary preparation, missionary care, equipping churches for mission through coaching, labs, vision, and strategy processes, and more. They also connect mission works around the globe. So, if you're a missionary, your church, your pastor, church leader, MRN is a great organization for you to get to know. They also have been working on following God's lead to cast vision and develop collaborative strategies for the exciting opportunities to care for and share the gospel with refugees who have settled around the Mediterranean Rim. So if you want more information about the Missions Resource Network, go to mrnet.org. That's mrnet.org. Now, before we get to the podcast, one final thing. As we said last week, it is time for another mailbag podcast. Now, if you want to send in a question, Luke at LukeNorsworthy.com or our Facebook page would be a good place to go. Uh, If you are feeling frisky and want to send in a voice memo, voice note, that will actually have your own voice possibly played on the actual podcast, you can send that over to me as well through both of those channels. And look for that in a few weeks. So send in those questions. Uh, Mailbags are always fun to do. And uh, I hope we get to hear from you for that. And yeah, so hit me up. on If you haven't gone to the Facebook page and liked it, please do that. Uh, And that's a good place to send it over in my wife's colony, which means time to play the podcast. So here we go. Gentlemen. Yeah, he's a good man. All right, well, let's uh, let's jump in. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have Jamin Goggin on. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on, brother. Where where are you today? You're California, right? Yeah, so I'm in uh, San Marcos, which is in North San Diego County. Oh, I hate you. That's an outstanding place. The, the weather is quite wonderful, man. It's a beautiful place to live. I'm kind of hurt that you didn't invite me to come out there to do the podcast in California. Um, we'll get over that, though. <laughs> are you from? Are you a California guy? Yeah, born and raised. Uh, moved down to North San Diego, though, only about seven months ago to join a friend down here in ministry um, at a church. And most of my life was spent in Orange County, so just a little bit further north. Grew up in Orange County. Right, where'd you go to school? Uh, for college mm-hmm. or, okay. I didn't know if we're shooting for elementary school, preschool. No, let's, let's start with college. <laughs> let's, uh, let's start with college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I went to Biola university, which is, mm-hmm. uh, South Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. and I did my undergrad there and I also did two, uh, master's degrees there at Talbot seminary. Cool. Right yeah. on. And so what are you, what are you doing at this church now? Yeah, so I joined a friend of mine down here actually from seminary, and so it's a shared leadership model. So we're the two uh, pastoral staff who are also elders. We share pulpit, we share primary shepherding responsibilities and kind of oversight of the staff. And so um, in many ways, uh, it's it's a church that's um, 
going through kind of somewhat of a replant. We gotcha. Um, there's a there's a 15 year kind of history in life here in the life of the congregation, but um, he's been in his role for two years now, and I guess I've been in my role for a little over a year. So nice. Yeah. Well, you're all about the shared leadership. You uh, you co leaders the church, and you co wrote a book, actually two books. Uh, yeah. with Kyle Strobel. Is that how you say his last name? Yep, Kyle Strobel, yep. You're, you're all about like the teamwork. Teamwork makes a dream work with you, I guess. Yeah, man. Well, I, you know, it's uh, for Kyle and I with, with the writing, he and I have been best friends for many, many, many years. And as we kind of began to sense a calling vocationally uh, toward writing, it just kind of was birthed out of our friendship and out of our conversations. And so th- there wasn't kind of a a definitive moment of decision like, Hey, we're going to co-author and here's what this looks like. But it was just kind of how, how we naturally gravitated towards the writing process. And so there you are. Nice. Right. Okay. Well, here's the problem though. I'm not going to remember like whose story I'm referencing in the book. So (laughs) you need to answer not just for yourself, but also for Kyle. Can you make that happen? Fair enough. You know, funny enough, I have friends that have read the book and they've, they've admitted to me that, you know, when, when it says, I, Kyle, for a story, they just kind of mentally cross off Kyle and, and just kind of assume that it's me, you know? So. <laughs> hey, I do, you know, I do that quite often with my sermons. Like, I act, act like I actually wrote them when I really just got them off iTunes. So, it's, I mean, it's the same basic idea, right? Oh, boy. Uh, that's, that's the same thing, isn't it? Co-authoring sermons? No? Pass, right. pass. I'm going to pass. Okay, pass on that one. Okay. So, we're going to talk about... Uh, Christian celebrity culture, the obsession with the mm. the person, the personality, uh, the way of Jesus being the way of weakness over power, and um, the first one I'm going to get is, oh, Luke, you have a podcast, and you just interview people, often based on if they have a really big platform, and so you just follow around, and you're a sycophant off the the celebrity culture in Christianity. Um, what would you tell them to say that no, Luke isn't like that at all? Luke is not a sycophant of the personality-driven culture. Well, Luke, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't know we were starting off with a, with a defense of you and your ministry, but uh, here we go. It's just a podcast. It's not my real job. No, but okay. So I'm now reading. I know why you really had me on. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want you to make me feel better. But no, so I read this book, and you yeah. you're talking about like our obsession with celebrity culture, and sure. But so I'm thinking, okay, well, in the podcast, you have you know certain people that would fit in that category, and sure, sure. even like the endorsement of your book, you've got. Uh, Russell Moore, Southern Baptist president mm-hmm. or whatever. You got Matt Chandler, who's probably like the biggest conservative celebrity in the world, um, mm. it seems like. <laughs> um, and uh, side note, w- when my first preaching gig was at a little country church, my second was at a uh, interdenominational Bible study in Abilene, Texas. And the guy who spoke at it before me was Matt Chandler. Oh, wow. And so my like, it was the first role that people had some familiarity with like a little country church people don't really know anything about but a you know bible study that a thousand college kids go to everyone knew who that was and it was always oh mm. you're the guy who followed matt chandler and there there were sundays or there were, it was tuesday nights there were tuesdays where people would walk in and go oh matt's not here i'm like no but like i'm 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 here and they'll be walking <laughs> out the door oh no okay so all, the reason i'm talking about that is well. I, last week i read your book on a on a plane trip i was going uh, to colorado and i was skiing and on a ski lift, 
the people say, hey, what are you doing? I go, oh, yeah, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, you're in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Do you know Matt Chandler? And I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm back in like my oh, wow. my grad school days. Because that's like the like the biggest Christian celebrity in mm. conservative kind of Texas pastor role, like mm. the world. And we really are obsessed with that. What is mm. the problem? And this has nothing to do with Matt Chandler at all. I'm not saying this has anything to do with Matt. Uh, but what is the problem with our obsession and our fascination with personalities? Yeah, well, I think... Um you know, it, what, it, what's interesting about the book, too, is we've got endorsements from Matt Chandler, and then we also have one from Sarah Bessie, who's probably, uh, and Sarah's a friend, but who's probably somewhat of a celebrity more on the progressive side of the aisle, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And you've got Richard Beck on there, who's yeah. a good but friend I think, of mine. Yeah. I, you know, what's interesting is, um, I think this is a really important question. And what's interesting is one of the, the I guess, first kind of pushbacks we got, actually, once the book came out, was somewhat related to this question. And the pushback kind of went something like this. Well, so you guys express concern about kind of guruism, if you will, kind of creeping into the life of the church. And, you know, there, there's, there's elements, cultural elements that kind of are attached to that celebrity culture, um, platform kind of hierarchy, hierarchies that are, that are built within our society. And, okay, but then you, you know, you, you spend the book talking about your travels to go and sit with Eugene Peterson and J.I. Packer and John Vanier and John Perkins mm-hmm. and Marvin Don. And well, aren't you just kind of, I mean, aren't you going around and visiting a bunch of gurus? Right. Yeah, and, exactly. And so it's a really good question, a really important question. And I think um, what I want to say in response is n- no, um, there's a difference between a sage and a guru. And the church is desperately in need of sages. And the sage has always had a role in the life of God's people. Um, this is true uh, clearly in the Old Testament. And then as we, we move into the New Testament, I think the sage role r- really is kind of captured more through the language of elders, even within the life of, of a congregation or a church, right? That mm-hmm. We do need sages. We do need elders. Um, and Paul and Peter, for example, just to pick a couple couple guys from the New Testament. Well, yep. they are they are not hesitant to kind of name their position of authority and proper vocation in the life of the church. And what's clear as we read through the New Testament, particularly as we sweep through Acts, is these are guys who have a reputation, who are known, uh, whose whose names are recognized, right? I mean, Peter and Paul are both kind of celebrities in their own right in the first century within the life of the church. So, all that to say, I think what we want to avoid outright is saying anyone who has a platform, anyone who has notoriety, anyone who kind of has recognition or who ends up selling books or ends up speaking in front of large groups of people, that this is kind of an intrinsically bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the distinction that Kyle and I would want to make, if I could kind of point to some of Paul's language, even the New Testament, you know, the apostle Paul is consistently now as a sage or as an elder, as an apostle in the life of the church is his, his consistent invitation to fellow believers is to, as he says, to grow up into Christ, right? Mm-hmm. To grow up into Christ, who is the head, as Paul will say. And what I would want to say is that is actually an axiomatic reality in the Christian life. In other words, we are always growing up into a head. The question is, who are we growing up into? And here's, 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 the, here's the rub, and here's where the distinction I'd want to make. Um, and the danger of kind of the celebrity personality driven uh, leadership model in the life of the church, kind of guruism, the distinction between that and a sage. Well, a sage is one who is 
inviting others to grow up into Christ and consistently pointing others to Christ. A guru is one who is calling people to grow up into themselves and pointing to themselves and their personality as being central. And so I'd want to say that Paul's language there of growing up into Christ, growing up into he who is head is actually axiomatic of the Christian life. We're always growing up into someone else, Mm -hmm. right? The question is who? And I think sadly, sometimes, sometimes, um, when we see kind of guruism kind of creeping into the life of the church, what's going on there is a leader is inviting others to grow up into themselves and their own personality rather than growing up into Christ. And that's where the danger is. And so I'll close by saying this, the people that we went and visited, I would identify them as sages precisely because their invitation was not to kind of grow up into their own personality. Mm -hmm. Um, They weren't seeking to kind of form a cult following around them And they didn't identify kind of wisdom as being imbibed within their own person, right? They have something secret that we get to be a part of, but rather the wisdom they had to offer was the wisdom from another, right? Mm -hmm. And they're constantly pointing us to Jesus and inviting us to grow up into Christ along with them. Okay, so if the difference of a sage is that they're pointing to Christ and a guru is to themselves, I can't imagine any guru like any any christian leader who's trying to say no no no, just follow me e- everyone would couch it with no no no, i'm just trying to make everyone follow through jesus and no, no one's going to be that forthright with it I, I see the distinction like where do they sure. p- point people to and i really want to know like a, maybe a little bit more practical example of what that actually looks like but i don't really want to like get in the business of name calling and is, yeah. is there a way to answer that question without saying hey so and so at first baptist this place or uh is someone who's being a guru because he's pointing or she's pointing people to sure. themselves. Like, can, can we sure. get that, like, a more concrete answer without, like, name-calling? Yeah, well, I think I think where I would want to, and yes, I do not want to name-call either, so thank you for, for giving yeah, me the yeah. pass. I yeah, think, yeah. Um, I think uh, where I'd want to turn is with some of our kind of primary categories, even in the book, and because the book ultimately is about power. Right, mm-hmm. and what we're trying to, dis- to distinguish in the book is that there's two ways of power, kind of up and running, always available to us. Mm-hmm. Right, and the goal in the Christian life is not to kind of eschew power outright. I think this is one of the first temptations when we see things like power gone awry, or power misused, or um, kind of personality-driven leadership that seeks to kind of pull others into themselves, kind of gather followers around their own kind of agenda. Sometimes our response, I think particularly from my generation, for example, sometimes our response is to say, well, that's kind of all bad. Power outright is all bad. Well, yeah. I, that, I think that's a, that's a false turn. And ultimately, it's a fool's errand because no matter the setting or the environment we're in, power is kind of up and running, right? We have spheres yeah. of influence in our lives, whether it's with our three children in our home or with a small group of 20 people that gather in our house for a house church or 15 students of a youth group, right? The, the power is kind of up and running. And so, but the distinction we want to make is there, there's, there's two ways of power available to us. And the way we, the way we distinguish that in the book is we, we identify them as the way from above and the way from below. Mm-hmm. You use kind of language from James and, the way from below is power found in the self for the sake of the self. In other words, it's power kind of found within my own capacities and resources and faculties. Kind of my own talents and abilities and gifts are what I'm primarily leveraging to kind of get things done. And I'm wielding the power for the sake of having more influence, more notoriety, more platform, 
for the sake of greater power for myself, right? The distinction we want to make here is the way from above is power found in another, found in Christ by the Spirit amidst our weakness, and it's for the sake of love. It's not for the sake of greater control or domination or winning. Mm -hmm. Sacrifice and love of others. And so why do I... Why why develop all of that? <laughs> well, I think that's the primary way I would want to answer your question. Is mm-hmm. well, what we need to what we need to do is as it, to, in seeking to be discerning of the way a particular leader is wielding their power and authority, and identifying whether they are, have a propensity for being a guru, whether their leadership might be toxic, is to ask two simple questions: Where is their power coming from? What, what what are they appealing to consistently in their language, in their demonstration, in their teaching, in the way they show up in shepherding and leading others? W- what are they actually appealing to? You know, are they appealing to their own faculties, resources, talents, and abilities and gifts? And secondarily, what are they wielding that power for? Is, is oh. it for the sake of more influence, more platform, more control, more notoriety? And I think, I think those two questions begin to help at least give us somewhat of a grid for discernment. This is always going to require discernment, right? Yeah. So what I want to stop short of is kind of saying, well, here's the five questions you ask, and it's just easy. N- no, um, uh, this is always going to be slippery and deceptive, and there's going to be elements of manipulation involved in mm-hmm. it, right? And, and here's the truth. I want to land on this as well. I want to be really cautious as well and just kind of decrying toxic leaders who who are gurus because toxic leaders are the product of toxic cultures the truth is we want gurus the truth is what a guru offers us is an an ability to be attached to their own power to be special ourselves to kind of be a part of what they're doing and the truth is gurus are are elevated and put on platforms because we want them there because of our own desire for power our own desire for significance our own desire to be a part of something special and so what i really want to be cautious of as well is not only not just kind of name calling but also identifying the problem as solely being well we've just got you know 12 or 15 guys out there who really man they just they're power mongers well well they're in the positions they're in because we want them yeah (laughs) and we, we need to prayerfully discern in our own hearts what's driving us towards these kinds of leaders, right? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a great insight. And you've got, um, I forget who, who you're quoting on here, but you say what, one of the first temptations of power is to think that it's just out there. Like the problem with people abusing power is somehow those people over there. And even inherent in my question before is, okay, w- what can you look at the person over there that's being a power monger or trying to become the guru and trying to make it about them instead of saying, you know, what's what's wrong with me? How am I pulling yeah. um, pulling my resources and skills to make it about me instead of others? So I, I think you're definitely right to say that. And maybe we'll go to that a little bit more in a second. But when we're talking about... Um, what they appeal to, like their own strength instead of strength from above, like like what they're appealing to. Can you help flesh that out a little bit more for me? I'm trying to figure out what's an example of like how someone appeals to themselves um, to turn themselves yeah. into group. You know what I'm saying? Do, do you get my question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think um, again, the the, the the if the first question is where do they actually believe power comes from? Okay, if if the turn is to the self, you know, ultimately if, if kind of 
what is funding my now let's focus let's focus the question specifically in the relation to ministry doing kingdom work right and, and I, i'll talk specifically as a pastor myself if if kind of what i'm appealing to in my ministry is my own kind of pedigree uh, training gifting talents and abilities to kind of get get things done uh then we have a problem mm-hmm. and what I don't want to say is that, you know, I'm, you know I, I went to seminary. Uh, I, I read a lot of books. Um, I do think I have natural abilities and capacities that, that God desires to use for the good in his kingdom. But if, if my primary kind of grounding, the primary source I appeal to to kind of get things done in ministry is those things, then um, this is power gone awry. Mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, – to speak in my own life, I think for me in ministry, oftentimes, um, uh, you know, I, I think I have I have turned inward, looking to kind of get things done in ministry um, through my own sense of ingenuity and creativity, right? And I, to use a really concrete example, if, if if kind of we're facing a season in the life of the church where we have to really rethink and kind of reimagine what we're doing in ministry, whether it's with small groups, whether it's with thinking through our worship service and how to do that effectively, whether it's um, rethinking the way we, we have kind of a process of identifying newcomers who in our church and reaching out to them and connecting with them. Well, I know something's gone wrong, Luke, if I can find myself to the end of that process of discernment um, without having spent really any time in prayer. Okay. And I know something has gone wrong if primarily what I'm appealing to is kind of my own sense of ingenuity and creativity and ability to kind of engineer something and manufacture something. There's a story that I share in the book of a pastor friend of mine um, who uh, is a pastor of a large congregation, uh, multi-site congregation, great guy. And I distinctly remember this conversation with him years ago he was kind of acknowledging to me that this, this dissonance he was feeling in ministry and realizing that so much of his ministry had been leveraging his own talents, abilities, capacities, to kind of think well, reason well, um, uh, talk his way through a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And incredible orator as well, great communicator that he could kind of leverage his words to kind of get things done, to rally the troops, to cast vision. And he said to me, man, you, you know, I've come to realize that I don't even need to be a Christian to kind of do what I'm doing well. That mm. that a, an atheist could actually step into my role, leverage very similar kind of training and background of business acumen, um, leadership concepts and strategies, and he could he could accomplish much of what I've accomplished. And something's gone wrong there, right? Mm. And so uh, maybe giving that specific example as well as some examples from my own life yeah. uh, helped to bear, bear it out. I think, I think some of the texture of it, maybe just to close this off s- to answer your question, I think some, the texture of it, again, it, it shows up, it showed up in my own life as kind of, do I view the church and, and the pulpit more as a platform for personal accomplishment and influence mm-hmm. Um, do I view kind of the arena of, uh, do I view ministry as an arena of performance where some win and some lose, right? Mm. Do I relegate kind of prayer and care really, which are the primary 
pieces of, of the pastoral vocation, right? This is the heart of what she- the pastoral vocation is about. Do I relegate those things to kind of other staff or volunteers because I need to be about the big and important things, yeah. right? Do I view other pastors primarily as competition? Th- these are markers that I've embraced a wrong kind of power in ministry, that, um, that my power for ministry is being funded from the wrong location and is for the wrong purposes. These, these are often signs, at least in my own life in ministry, where I know something's gone wrong. Yeah. I, okay, so first temptation of power is to think that the problem is just out there. Like, it's, it's just them. And like, as you said earlier, the reason yeah. that we elevate uh, these people to being gurus, which we're using in a derogatory sense, like unhealthy compared to sage being the healthy version is yeah. not just about them it's about us like we we put these women and men in these guru positions because we want them what mm-hmm. are some of the introspection introspective work that we need to do to think of why we want people to be like these christian celebrities why what is it in my heart that's getting me to want to elevate so and so to be a guru in my life how do, how am i supposed to think through that yeah i think um, what a guru is, is um, typically offering, right, is um, in exchange for loyalty, you get to be a part of my specialness, mm-hmm. right? In exchange for loyalty, you get to tap into the power that I'm offering. And I'm really going somewhere. I'm really getting something done, Um Something significant is happening here, and you get you get to you get a seat at that table. And typically, um, gurus form more of more of a, a cult like following, right? Um, Jean Vanier speaks to this very specifically in our book, actually in the interview, that gurus form a cult around them, right? Uh, people who, uh, through fear and and the manipulation of loyalty, now are. Um, offered a seat at the table, are given promises of being special, are told that they get to be powerful as well. And I think there's a variety of things up and running there for us in our own hearts, right? And I think specific gurus, specific leaders can even tap into for us individually certain wounds in our own lives with other authority figures, even our parents, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They can often serve kind of a father figure in our life. Um, uh, they, and so, so there, I, I want to identify even personal kind of psychological reasons for gravitating towards and finding comfort in certain leaders who promise to be attached to them, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that is up and running in people's hearts and our own specific wounds and our own specific story comes into play here. But, but again, more broadly, I think what I'd want to narrate is, well, this is just how the fall has hit us, right? Mm-hmm. The fall, the fall has hit us in such a manner that, uh, rather than believing life is found in dependence upon God and entrusting ourselves to Him, we believe life is found in autonomy and uh, having life in our own terms and our own power and our own strength. And usually, what a guru is offering is, well, if you're going to hit your wagon to me, um, that's what I'm achieving, and you get to be a part of that as well, yeah. right? And so. It's 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 a very similar lie that Satan offers to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's a very similar offer that he's presenting before Christ in the wilderness as well. Yeah. Right? 
Well, if if anyone knows the story of Jean Vanier, uh, who I always think I'm mispronouncing his name every time I say it, um, <laughs> yeah. is that he's definitely someone who's em- embraced uh, loving the weak, the disabled, the elderly. Uh, and and, yes. and one of the questions that, that you or Kyle, I forget who, you're basically a dynamic duo in my opinion, so it's the same person. One of you guys say is that <laughs> ministry is not about how we can be great. But it's how we can make the weak, the disabled, the elderly have be comfortable in our midst, and and that's a different move from how how can we be uh, influential? How can we have a big platform? Which you guys have written two books, is that right? Yeah. So you've you've written two books. Part of the publishing industry is that it 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 wants to know how great are you, right? Like they're asking you how big's your platform and oh, yeah. how big's your reach Absolutely. and who will endorse your book and all that stuff. And it's just saying, okay. To, Tell us how great you are. Um, ministry, like you said, it's moving against that. Um, one of the you, you again. One of you two tell a story about a church that really builds uh, like this Tower of Babel in the end. Was that you? Was that your story, or was that Kyle's story? That's that's Kyle's story. Yeah. Okay, you got to tell that. I I love that story. Um, would you want me to? Re- yeah, give us the, your version of that story. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ky- you know, Kyle's. Um, uh, was traveling with his wife and they were visiting uh, a friend, you know, friend's church that he had been familiar with. He'd um, been there previously mm-hmm. and walked in the entryway and in the corner, he noticed there was a, you know, this, this big tower, you know, a ziggurat, yeah. you know, which, which, um, you know, most scholars think was probably what, what the tower of Babel yeah. was fashioned in. And, um, you know, first he thought, well, you know, why would that be in the lobby? Oh, it must be like a, you know, the Chosen's Ministry. The kids did this as a, a way to, you know, demonstrate this story. And, yeah. But as he approached it, he realized, oh no, this is this is an actual kind of monument, if you will, um, to the accomplishments of the church and um, different stones in in the ziggurat that was built there. It was actually a giant fountain. As he got closer, he realized it was a fountain. But different stones in 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 the fountain in the ziggurat. Uh, had markers of things the church had accomplished over the years. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a monument to their accomplishments and what they had done and how they had built the church. And they didn't even realize that it was uh, a mere representation of this terrible tower that's supposed to represent the flaw of men's attempt, uh, of humanity's attempt to to build their way to... Yeah, I mean, it's a a very fitting metaphor. You also reference a a, a well-known pastor... Uh, which many people can fill in the blank on who this is, but when he was forced to step down, the leadership was quick to say that this person did nothing immoral as a way to say right. that he didn't have sex with someone who wasn't his wife, but the rest of his abuse of power was not considered uh, immorality. Why do you think that that happens where we separate immorality as in sex to not uh, to not include the abuses of power? Yeah, I think, man, this is... Um and I think that with that question, I want to kind of turn to, I think probably what's maybe most provocative about our book. And again, we, we, we really are trying to kind of grab hold of the language that James uses there in James three to talk about these two ways of power, the way from above and the way from below. And what's so provocative about how James talks about the way from below, this way of power from the self for the self, right? Power for control. Um, the, the way he talks about the way from below is, is he says it, it can be identified in, in a couple through a couple qualities, selfish ambition and jealousy. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
okay, so we, we don't we don't have like the you know really serious sins here, you know, yeah. as far as far as we would align them. But then he goes on to say, in this way from below is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, um, and. Uh, and the, you know the history of the church. Now we've kind of captured that phrase and turned it into kind of an axiomatic uh, phrase that most people are familiar with: the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? Yeah. That this way from below is the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That in fact, selfish ambition and jealousy are demonic. Right? That when we participate in kind of this way of power, this way from below, a power from the self and for the sake of control, when we view others through the lens of competition, when we use ministry to kind of gain more notoriety in our own platform, right? When, when we manipulate the New York Times bestseller list yeah. to sell more books, we're actually embracing the way of the demonic. And I think you're absolutely right, Luke, that uh, at least in recent, his, in kind of recent history of the evangelical church, I, I, you know, I want to be cautious kind of overstating the, the case here, but in recent history, we we really have this kind of odd notion of morality, right? And um, where, and, and I want to say as a pastor, like, it's really hard to get fired as a pastor. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, I, you know, I, guys, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want, you know, so that's a good thing. And I'm okay with that. But, you know, really, it's um, sex is the only issue, right? And, um, and I think the truth is, brother, that, um, the same narcissism and greed and selfish ambition and jealousy that ultimately perhaps have been demonstrated recently in some well-known pastors' lives. It's kind of been exposed, right? Mm-hmm. And the era, the era of social media, it, you know, um, I think exposes these things in a whole new way than it would have even 10 years ago. But these very same qualities that now I think we're seeing are up and running in some leaders – are the very same qualities that, in fact, helped them build their, quote, build their ministry mm-hmm. and grow a platform. And they're the very same qualities that we, in fact, found of benefit yeah. in growing a successful and powerful ministry. And so the very same narcissism and greed or jealousy or selfish ambition that we now decry were the very same qualities that were driving a ministry that we touted as being successful and significant. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it would be, I would want to be quick to, to acknowledge that often the ones with the biggest platform that we can see how egregious their sins are, uh, are people who are not different in the type of person they are, but a different in percent, like the percent of their flaws that are more well-known probably is higher than ours, but there's something about the big platform that you crave for. And then it elevates and magnifies what's inside of all of us. And I, I don't think, sure. like the old line that power doesn't, like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like I think that thing that's inside of them is in, in most of us. And and often you see, like obviously the Driscoll case is one we're referencing here. Like it's easy to decry his evils, but to know, you know, a lot of us have the same thing inside of us that we all need to be guarding against. And I, good, good. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's, you know, the, and I'm sure you picked up on this as, as you read the book, but. It's precisely that point that for us was was the driving thread of writing the book. That the way of the dragon, the way of the lamb, is not kind of us wagging our fingers at the guys that have gotten caught in recent years, or even us wagging our finger at the evangelical church broadly and saying, you know, man, look at look at what you all are doing wrong. But 
the book is written from the perspective of Kyle and I ourselves seeing these own temptations in our own hearts and going on a journey to really open our hearts to the Lord in this regard. And so we, we, we sat at the feet of these sages because we were on a pilgrimage ourselves of confessing our own grandiosity. We, I mean, my goodness, you know, Kyle and I both grew up um, in very large church environments. I grew up at Saddleback. He grew up at Willow Creek. Mm. Uh, Kyle's dad is Lee Strobel, um, you know, who's written the case for Christ, case for faith. And we have, I didn't even, I didn't even connect that. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, we have, th- what we grew up in was an environment where we saw p- quote, powerful, big, significant, um, impactful ministries. And, and, and I want to be clear, no one along the road in those environments said, you know, it's about cultivating a platform. It's about having big influence. It's about doing it this way. But I think what was up and running in our own hearts, kind of our, our, our bent towards unhealthy power, kind of the flesh operating in our vestiges of sin operating in our own hearts, mm-hmm. is we, we kind of collected that experience. And as we then stepped into college and stepped into seminary, our trajectory very much was I wanted to be on a big stage in front of a lot of people. Yeah. And for Kyle and I both, we went to seminary with grandiosity in our hearts, you know, and and there were there were healthy things up and running in our hearts as well, a desire to, to learn and grow and to shepherd God's people and to teach his word faithfully. But you know what else was there for sure? I wanted I wanted to have a big influential ministry. And and then you get into seminary and for Kyle and I both, you're doing a ma- we're doing a master's in New Testament and we keep running into these really unfortunate statements by Jesus, you know, like the first will be last and last, you know, mm. and don't seek the seats of honor. And you see this scene with Jesus and Peter, right? Where Peter is kind of, uh, you know, uh, standing against Jesus' way of the cross, right? So you're going to kind of correct Jesus. No, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it this way. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. Wow, my goodness, right? And, and so for Kyle and I, it was this confrontation of our own grandiosity, you know, our own desire to have power and significance, our own quest for control, our, our own desire to kind of use um, kingdom things for our own ends yep. that really set us on the journey. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is an agreement with you. And I think what I've now come to know just through the writing of this book and conversations with pastor, pastors and friends for the last 12 years, and even in conversations this last month as the book comes out, that this is something that all pastors are struggling with and and all of us are struggling with, but I think again, to focus it on pastors, cause that's, those are my people. Yeah. Right. Um, um, and because as Eugene Peterson says, and he says this in the book, because pastors just are in a position of power. We just are in a position of influence. And I, I was no less struggling with my visions of grandiosity when I was a youth pastor in my early twenties with a house full of 30 high school students listening to me teach for 45 minutes mm-hmm. Than I am now, and in, in front of a in front of a whole congregation on a Sunday morning, right? The, those temptations were still there for me. Um, yeah, I, I agree. They're they're in all of us. We all have to check those. Like I think it was Marva Dawn who said this that the number like the no she didn't say this but someone said that the first temptation of power is to think that the issue is always out there and it's not just out there the the line of good and evil is not between us and them it's yes. always right down the middle of yes. me I, I love that I love your connection like the separation of sage versus guru and mm. to to think that you align 
with a guru because that's going to make you whole and you're going to get their power. Like that, that's, that's the abuse. The sage is a person who's going to point you to Christ, who's going to point you to truth. Um, and so your metaphor, the way of above and below obviously comes from James. That's my dad's favorite book. So he's going to be very proud of me when he hears this. Um, okay. So the way of the dragon is a way of abusing power. The way of the lamb is this way of embracing weakness. Um, if someone's never tapped into the idea that there actually is um, a a way of Jesus that leads you not to strength, but in weakness, how would you kind of usher them into this lifestyle of embracing weakness? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and this is, I think, an important distinction to make right out the gate that the, the kind of the end goal is not simply to just kind of embrace our weakness as such. In other words, the goal isn't to kind of embrace some a life kind of like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? Where I, I'm kind of moping about declaring a narrative of failure over my life everywhere, right? And kind of disacknowledging any gifts and talents I have or abilities and strengths I have. But I think um, the turn to answer your question here for me would be to look at Paul because, of course, this is the language we get really clearly from him. For Paul, uh, embracing the way of the cross, embracing kind of a cruciform way of life – um, way of power and weakness that's known uh, in, in Christ's uh, ministry, but most climatically at the cross, is a way of knowing power and weakness. And Paul's going to make this really clear in the second letter of the Corinthians, right? And the tension there, the backdrop there, is Paul is facing a church that is now questioning his apostolic authority, and it's precisely on these grounds, right? Because as, as we read in the letter, Paul kind of tongue tongue-in-cheek identifies these other teachers that have come into town who he calls the super apostles, right? You got to love that. Super apostles, right? And these super apostles, well, they kind of have the, those external markers and signs of power that the Corinthians are really looking for, that they think are are real markers and and identifiers of uh, those who really have embraced Christ's ministry, right? This is what an apostle really should look like. Someone who's really good with their words, right? Has great stage presence and takes money for their teaching, right? These are the things that we're told the super apostles do. And as Paul writes the letter to the second Corinthians, what becomes clear is he doesn't do these things, right? He says, I didn't come to you with eloquent words, right? I, I don't sound like the best rhetoricians of the day. And I don't come with kind of the same kind of pomp and physical stature and presence that these other figures do. And I don't take money for my teaching. And to you, that's a shame. And he, recognize, he identifies over and over again throughout the letter that he really has um, not uh, demonstrated the kind of external signs of power and significance that they would expect to be markers of someone who really is an apostle of the risen Christ Jesus and the kingdom of God, right? And what Paul's going to say in response to all this is quite antithetical to what my natural response would be. Because what he says is, He's on the precipice of losing this church, losing them to these other leaders, and ultimately, as he's going to say, losing them to another gospel, right? Mm. This is this way that these super apostles have presented themselves, the way that they've, they've kind of shown up in ministry is actually a rejection of the true gospel. And this is what's, as a brief aside, so provocative about 2 Corinthians, is that at no point does Paul say um, anything about them teaching false or wrong doctrine. I, I think we can assume they probably are. But his case for them presenting a different Jesus and a wrong gospel is actually rested upon their manner of ministry. Like them showing up with kind of power in their own strengths, leveraging their talents and abilities, seeking to control and kind of dominate 
the Corinthians and kind of woo them to their side. He says, this is another gospel, an, another Jesus they're offering you. And ultimately, he identifies them as servants of Satan in doing so. Right? Wow. And But what Paul, Paul's response ultimately to, to the, all of this is not, what, what I would do is I would kind of, on the precipice of losing a church, I would kind of, Marshall, my best defense. Well, you know, don't you know all the miracles I've done? Don't yeah. you know all the amazing, powerful things? I've Instead, when we get to chapter 12, right, he's, or chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, what Paul is doing is he's just pushing forward all his weaknesses again. He's saying, oh yeah, let me tell you about all the things I've been suffering and all the, all the ways I've been beaten up and rejected and, you know, all the danger I've been in. And he just pushes forward his weaknesses once again. And, and ultimately, he's going to kind of conclude all that by saying, why do I do this? I boast in my weakness that the power and the glory of Christ might be known, yeah. right? I, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And what Paul is getting at there is this, is not that weakness is the end game, but ultimately that the power of Christ is really the end game. Mm. That Paul is saying, no, it, it really is about having a powerful ministry, but power is known in dependence upon Christ by the Spirit. And my weaknesses, these places of shortcoming and failure, my inabilities, my sufferings, these are all now means, instruments, opportunities for me to rely upon Christ. And I think what he's grabbing hold of there is is really the simple words of Jesus in John 15, right? Abide in me and I in you. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the radical truth in the kingdom is when we rely upon ourselves to kind of get God's work done, this is the only actual place of impetus and weakness in the kingdom. When you rely upon yourself, that's the only place of actual weakness in the kingdom of God. But when you rely upon Christ by the Spirit, in the truth of your own weaknesses, shortcomings, and failures, when when you use those weaknesses as opportunities to depend upon Him, when you don't seek to hide from them or avoid them, you don't kind of uh, you know, kind of pile up your strengths on top of them so no one will notice them. But when you acknowledge them outright, when you when you say, yeah, here's my weaknesses, and you even acknowledge those before other people, you now are opening your heart to really receive the true power of Christ known in the yeah, kingdom. That's good. That's good. Well, there's more where that came from. Uh, the book is entitled The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. Uh, you and your sidekick Kyle did a great job uh, I hope this book gets you a huge platform and that you can become very powerful <laughs> in the evangelical church no uh, thanks for your time man good book good work man hey honored to be with you bro thank cool. you for the time thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes you are now adjourned